Berkeley Yeast is back again with Sunburst Chico, the yeast you love now with a sunny burst of pineapple. This strain was bioengineered to produce ethyl esters, fragrant flavor compounds that give your beer a distinctive kick of fresh pineapple. Perfect for tropical West Coast IPAs, pale ales, and tiki-style summer crushers. Mention this podcast for 15% off your next order of Sunburst Chico when you visit berkeleyyeast.com. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go! 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 Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. Yeast is an incredible living microorganism. We've known for years that yeast has a crucial impact on the flavor profile and sensory properties of beverages, and the Fermentus Beer Yeast Strain lineup is designed to meet the requirements for all brewers, so you can release your creativity. Visit Fermentus.com or explore our app to discover more about yeast behavior and characterization. Which you're about to hear originally aired in June of 2019. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. You know, the first brewery I worked at was a pub brewery in California uh, from 1988 to 1992. It was called San Andreas. And and Bill, the owner there, never wanted me to brew an IPA. He said his customers weren't ready for it. And, uh, you know, and obviously things have changed. (laughs) This week on the show, Mitch Steele talks about the evolution of IPA. We go all the way from IPA's early history to modern times and hear about some of Mitch's strategies for brewing IPA at New Realm. Mitch, there's very little that we know about early IPA. What do we know? Well, um, we know that beer was being shipped uh, to India from England uh, on a pretty regular basis in the 1700s. And we know that there was a brewer... um, uh, at the Bow Brewery, uh, his name was Hodgson, uh, and he was shipping beer to India on a on a regular basis. And one of the beers that he was shipping was a pale ale, and the pale ale was what we think was the original IPA. Um, and every beer that was shipped back then was dry hopped in the cask. So the whole idea of of dry hopping in the cask and putting extra hops in for shipment was something that was done to virtually every beer at the time. Um, the, the conventional wisdom is, is that Hodgson at, at Bow Brewery invented India Pale Ale specifically for shipping to India. And based on the evidence that a lot of beer historians have uncovered, we don't think that's the case. We think he was just shipping one of his standard beers, and it became very popular. And um, and and you can, uh, you know, some of the historians, uh, you know, Martin Cornell and Ron Pattinson and Pete Brown and some of these guys from England that have done some extensive research on this have learned and and have found uh, advertisements and and press regarding this beer that was being shipped to India and. Up until uh, the mid-1830s, it was really just referred to as Hodgson's Pale Ale. Uh, It never was referred to as India Pale Ale until uh, about 1835. Uh, There may have been one... One reference to it as India Pale Ale earlier than that, but really up in, you know, for 50 or 60 years that they were shipping this beer to India, it really was just called Pale Ale. 
Yeah, it's funny, you know, even though uh, I guess your your book, which I guess is maybe seven or so years old now, kind of busted that myth, I still hear folks telling that story today about how, you know, it was designed to survive the, the long trip around the Horn of Africa when all the <laughs> other beers spoiled, but it sounds like that's definitely not the case. Yeah, it seems like it was a more serendipitous kind of thing where, where he was shipping this beer and it had a lot of hops in it and it just became the preferred beer in India. And, you know, when they, uh, when the, when the Burton Brewers started getting involved in providing a little competition to to Hodgson, I think that's when the term India Pale Ale really started coming about. There's quite a bit more information available about IPA brewed during the Burton years, so we're talking roughly 1820 to 1900. Tell us about those beers. Yeah, there's actually a lot of lot of information documented on on these beers, and the, and the thing about the Bow Brewery and the Hodgson's beer um, in in the 1700s, early 1800s, is that brewery went out of business, and all the records, if they had records, are long gone. Uh, so you know you have to make guesses based on on how people are were describing the flavor in print and and how they were pricing the beer. But with the with the Burton Brewers, Allsop and Salt and Bass, when they when they started brewing this beer and trying to emulate the Hodgson IPA, uh, they kept good records. And I was able to go uh, into the uh, Burton Museum in Burton-on-Trent and and actually look at some of the old recipe books. And I had some other documentation as well. So we know quite a bit about this beer, and it's, it's really not a lot different than what we consider a West Coast IPA today. Um, it's a very pale beer. It was very dry. It was fermented. It went through multiple seasons of fermentation to accentuate the dryness. The original gravity was, you know, in the in the sixteen to seventeen Plato range, or ten sixty five to ten seventy, if you if you like uh, specific gravity, and we believe it was about seventy IBUs, uh, and so it it really is, except for the ingredients, you know, which were different back then, of course. It really is pretty similar to what what a lot of brewers were brewing IPAs like over the last ten to fifteen years. Uh, we know the malt. Uh, the Burton Brewers put together a very uh, or developed a process to kiln pale malt at a very low temperature to really reduce the color formation during the kilning process. East Kent Golings were the preferred hops in in India Pale Ale. It basically was the showcase beer for for these breweries, so they tried to use the best ingredients they could. And of course, the Burton water is very hard uh, with you know lots of calcium and sulfate, and and so you know that's where the term Burtonizing water came from was was from the characteristics of Burton water and brewers in other locations trying to emulate that and and replicate that water profile to get the uh, the hop bitterness to come through. Um, we we know that how the beer was brewed because we know how all the beer was brewed back then through the records. Um, I think the most interesting thing that I found out in doing the research for this is they would brew, uh, these Burton brewers would brew the beer in typically November, December timeframe, allow it to go through a primary fermentation, and then put it into casks and let it sit through the summer uh, so that it, the fermentation started up again as the temperatures warmed up and really dried out the beer. And I think that was something that, that takes it into a different realm than, than what today's brewers are doing, where we all want to have really fresh hop character and we want to get it, get it packaged while the hops are still really, really prominent and intense. And, and it was pretty much opposite that in the 1800s with the, with the Burton beers. That's interesting. And what kind of hop rate are we talking about? How, how many how, how many pounds per barrel were they actually using? Oh, it was a lot. I mean, East Kent Goldings were very low alpha acids back then. I think most of the estimates are around 2 to 3% alpha acids. Uh, we we have no way of knowing for sure, but they were hopping at 5 to 5 to 7 or 8 or even 9 pounds per barrel in in the IPA, and that includes all the hopping, you know, the the hopping in the brew house and the hopping uh, in the cask. And that's a lot of hops. Um, you know, I mean, today's IPA brewers, I, th- I think I saw that the average hop use among craft brewers right now is at about 1.7 or 1.8 pounds per barrel. And I know there's a lot of brewers that are using five pounds per barrel in IPAs, especially the hazy IPA brewers. But really, that's that's an unreal amount of hops. 
Yeah, it really is. So were those beers, um, you know, also, again, the, the low alphas, but also I bet a lot of those hops were pr- probably pretty oxidized too. Were those beers described as being very bitter? Yes, they were. Um, Hodgson's beer, when, when the Burton Brewers first tasted it, um, it was described as incredibly bitter and harsh. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, they, they were described as bitter, but not unpleasantly so. Okay. How, how much of that dryness do you think came from hop creep? We've been talking about that a lot lately. Yeah, that's a real good question. And, and actually, uh, John from, from Steiner, uh, who's got a really great presentation on New England IPAs, brought that up uh, with me uh, recently. And, and I, I don't know, you know, hop creep wasn't, when I wrote the book, hop creep wasn't really something that had been identified yet. It's quite possible that a lot of it was from that. I do think a lot of it also came from the fact that the British yeast cultures uh, had multiple strains in them. And and more than likely, we've, we've got proof that these cultures uh, often had Britannomyces in them as well, which would also accentuate the dryness if, you know, during a secondary or tertiary fermentation. You mentioned too, I think that these beers were aged for a pretty long time. What what was the main um, besides getting them to dry out? What were the other main drivers behind that long aging process? Oh, it was it was really all about drying it out, and and it was so that the casks when they were, or the barrels, uh, I'll use casks and barrels interchangeably. But when the when the barrels were put on a boat, uh, the brewers did not want to have any residual fermentable sugars in that beer at all because the casks had explode. And and so that was that was the one thing that any beer for shipping was aged for a very long time in oak barrels just to make sure that everything fermentable had been fermented out. Cool. Okay, you hear um, a lot about sort of like the party guile method during this time period. What was that all about? Why did that really, you know, what, what did that really achieve? Well, um, you know, at the time they didn't, uh, 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 you know, the whole sparging thing was kind of a new process. Sparging, sparging in the Louderton was something that, that Scottish brewers developed at some point in the 1800s. And before then, what what brewers would do is they would do multiple mashes, and so they would they would mash a batch of beer, and collect the wort and boil it, and then with that grain they would add more liquid to it, more water, and mash it again and collect that, and they kept it all separate. And then what they could do is is blend the worts together to get the beer that they want, um, and. The only brewer that does that that I'm really aware of now is Fuller's in London, and they are sparging their their grain in the louder, but um, in the loudering process, they use a mash louder ton. But they do collect the wort into different vessels depending on the strength, and then blend them together to get their beers. Uh, so it's a very very British process, um, and that's how most of the beers were made back then. Okay, and it seems like these beers were always racked into casks before fermentation finished. Is that right? Well, in Burton, you know, they did the the Burton Union system. So they they would do get the fermentation started in a large vessel and then put them into very big barrels or casks uh, to finish the fermentation. And then they had these swan necks that came out of the wood barrels and into a trough up above to collect all the yeast. And that was how they got the yeast out of it. So things started to change once we got into the 20th century. Why is that? A lot of reasons. Uh, politics, of course, played a, a, a pretty big role in what was going on. Uh, there was a temperance movement that developed in the 1800s and went into the early 1900s that was very, uh, very influential. Uh, obviously, it, it resulted in prohibition in the United States, and it resulted in a lowering of alcohol contents in, across uh, the world. And that was that was one reason, uh, you know, being you know, high alcohol beers became became less acceptable. Uh, people being drunk in public became less acceptable, and, and and so that was that was one big piece of it. Uh, the other thing was the World War World Wars and and World War One in particular in uh, really created huge grain shortages, and that's when brewers in England started using sugar on a more frequent basis. 
And they just brewed beers lighter so they didn't have to use as many ingredients or as much malt in, in the beer. And, um, you know, taxation was part of this as well. Uh, you know, they, you know, sin taxes and things like that because of the temperance movements were increasing. And, and in England, they were taxing on how much malted barley used in in a batch of beer that was how they based their tax structure not on just volume like here in the united states so you know high alcohol beers in england are going to get taxed a lot higher than lower alcohol beers and that's still the case today and that's all a remnant of what happened in the early 1900s so did all of the ipas of of the of the previous era get dumbed down or were there any that sort of you know uh, kept remained as they were in their past you know, I think in England they probably. I would. I would say if there's an exception, I don't know about it. I think all of them got got lowered. Um, in the United States, uh, Ballantine's IPA uh, before and after prohibition. My understanding is it was pretty much the same beer. Well, that, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you to talk about that beer next because that was obviously an important brand in the history of of American IPA. So, so talk about Ballantines. Yeah, Ballantine um, was probably the only traditional IPA that survived into the 1960s, and uh, you know they they ran a brewery that. Um, Got bought and sold in the '60s during all the all the uh, consolidations, but but Ballantine's beer was pretty popular up until that point, uh, and and they were doing an IPA that really was very characteristic and very very English. Um, it was aged for a year in in oak casks. It, they weren't barrels or or you know fifty gallon barrels at that time. They were. They were large, what we call fooders today, uh, and there's there's pictures of those fooders in the book um, at at one of the breweries that was making it. I don't think it was Ballantine. I think it was uh, uh, Span or somebody else. But um, you know, they, so they went through this year long aging process, and then in after Prohibition. They developed a method to distill hop oil and add that for the dry hop instead of adding whole hops in, into the tank during this year-long aging process. And so that was a really interesting thing. I think most people think the, the hop they were using was bouillon, and they were, they were distilling it and creating an oil, and, and they would add that to the tank during the year-long aging process. But again, if you look at Ballantine IPA and what it was, it was a it was a light amber beer that had, um, you know, close to 7% alcohol, uh, 70 IBUs. And, you know, by the time the 1950s and 1960s rolled around and this beer was still there, it was, uh, it was definitely unusual and unique and nobody else was brewing anything like it, I don't think. Do you know if that steam distillation was something that sort of evolved, uh, you know, or was that something they, they did out of the gate? I think it was something that evolved, but I don't know for sure. I really wasn't able to uncover much or anything about that whole process. So I just, I grabbed that information from some other articles that have been published about Ballantine IPA, but there really wasn't a lot of detail about the technology around it. IPA today seems to mean a lot of different things. What did it mean in the early years of the craft craft revolution? Oh, I think it, you know, the, Early in craft, IPA was a showcase for hops. And, you know, I think most craft brewers in the 1980s, uh, with a few exceptions, started off brewing English-style ales. And uh, they would use, you know, uh, American hops in a lot of these beers. So it was really creating a new flavor profile for beer. But I remember in the late 80s tasting my first craft brewed IPA and it was the hoppiest beer I'd ever had in my life and it was it was so wild and so different from anything else that was being brewed it was just incredible what, what um, was that I was just going to ask you what what the first really amazing IPA you, you remember drinking was um I'm <laughs> this is a, a guess I think it was Rubicon IPA out of Sacramento uh and and I remember drinking the first time I had IPA was at a beer festival, and I think it was Rubicon, but I'm not positive. It might have been Anderson Valley, um, but you know, one of those early, you know, late mid to late '80s uh, California microbrewers was uh, who 
who brewed the first one uh, that I tried. And and then, you know, Liberty Ale had been brewed by Anchor Brewing out of San Francisco for since the 1970s, but they never really called it an IPA. But it, if you look at the recipe, it was an IPA. Um, and then, of course, Sierra Nevada Celebration Ale was one of the first ones as well. And, and you know, both, uh, you know, Mark Carpenter at Anchor and Ken Grossman at Sierra Nevada both told me that their IPAs, those beers were inspired by Ballantyne and, and Fritz Maytag and Ken Grossman uh, are old enough to remember Ballantyne in the 1960s and what it tasted like. I think early on with the, with the 1980s uh, and IPA brewing, you know, I think... The, the brewers, I I believe, were using you know some crystal malts in the beer. You had kind of a light amber or maybe medium amber beer with a lot of hop character, sixty to seventy IBUs, and you know a pound per barrel in the dry hop. And 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 at the time, those were very intense hop characters to have in any sort of beer, and really it was a shock to the system. But you know the brewers loved it, you know, and and it's it's like wow, you you know it it, it kind of evolved from the 1980s into the 1990s where where people started developing a taste for these really bitter beers and higher alcohol beers um, and and really hot forward beers and so IPA just kind of you know people kept brewing them and and more and more brewers started brewing them in fact you know the first brewery I worked at was a pub brewery in California uh, from 1988 to 1992, it was called San Andreas, and and Bill, the owner there, never wanted me to brew an IPA. He said his customers weren't ready for it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and obviously things have changed. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think we caught, we could have pulled it off. I I did ask him often, you know, if I could throw an IPA onto the schedule, and and he just really wasn't willing to go there. Um, but. Uh, you know, by the mid 1990s, there were a lot of brewers brewing IPA, and you know, one of the first ones in the 80s that was actually called IPA uh, and and put into a package was Burt Grant's IPA, Grant's IPA out of out of Washington State, and I. F- most people believe that that was the very first craft beer that was actually labeled as an IPA, um, but by the 1990s, a lot of brewers were making them. Coming up, you know, if if you put in another batch of beer into that fermenter, and it's there's still some residual enzyme hanging out in in some gasket material, uh, you can get a drier beer than what you want. And I I learned that the hard way. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Sponsored by BSG, distributors of Gambrinus Malting, Canada's original small batch artisanal malt house. If you've been searching for the perfect malt that's not quite pale and not Munich, you're in luck. Gambrinus Vienna is the malt you've been looking for. This mellow kilned malt has a balanced, bready character with notes of honey, toffee, and caramel baked in. With a gorgeous golden color, it's ideal for adding depth without too much sweetness. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. 
Shout out to Continental, a global supplier of brewery hoses. Their Extreme Flex Beverage Transfer Hose features pretzel-like flexibility for those tight bend connections. Raise a glass to its easy clean cover with a finish almost as smooth as your beer. Click the link in the show notes to find a distributor near you. Things change fast in the hop market. You want to be sure you're getting the best quality and price. Visit the Lupulin Exchange where you can find every variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, lot quality, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the U.S. The Lupulin Exchange. One stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Rocky Mountain meets June 1st at Holidayly Brewing in Golden, Colorado. District Southern California meets June 3rd at Gamecraft Brewing in Laguna Hills. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 8th. District Southeast meets June 10th in Miami. District New England meets June 16th at Valley Malt. District Philadelphia's annual golf outing is June 23rd in Barnesville. District Michigan's Summer Social is July 8th at Fitzgerald Park and Grand Ledge. Master Brewers has teamed up with ASBC to put on a two-day raw materials symposium August 3rd and 4th in Bloomington, Minnesota. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. District Michigan's fall meeting will be at Founders Brewing in Grand Rapids, October 19th. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join. back to the show. You know, it's becoming more difficult to find just a normal 1990s IPA these days. What do you think is key when brewing standard American IPAs the old way? Um, well, the old way, I would I would use sea hops. I would use Centennial, Cascade, Chinook, um, you know, maybe Columbus. Uh, I think that's that's kind of what characterized those early IPAs. Um, and, and then, you know, using crystal malt, which kind of went away as the West coast IPA in the late nineties and early two thousands became, came into prominence, you know, using 10% crystal malt and give it some malt balance is something that a lot of brewers did back then. Um, it's funny, you know, cause I, I know a lot of brewers that are doing, uh, now brewing old guard or old school IPAs and kind of going back to those recipes just to add have something different on their tap list uh but it's kind of cool to see that that people are getting back into into that another interesting hop that never was really used back then but has similar characteristics is comment uh which uh, you know is kind of getting a little popularity right now uh with craft brewers so yeah i think i think the big thing you know six to seven percent alcohol 60 to 70 ibus and a lot of sea hops how many a pound pound and a half per barrel in the dry hop yeah not over the top right not over the top but you know you have a lot more balance in in the early ones and then in true american fashion we had to keep making ipa bigger right right (laughs) so um you know that we call that the hops arms race um and the bitterness arms race but you know when when brewers uh like uh pizza port and and vinnie chalurzo at, at blind pig and and then la- a little bit later on stone started brewing ipas uh they created an ipa style that that was a little bit different and it was uh characterized much more by 
by having a very dry finish, uh, very little crystal malt. If they use crystal malt, it was a lightly colored crystal malt, not not C40, but maybe C15. Um, and just going 5, 5%, 7%, and something like that. Uh, bumping up the IBU levels uh, so that they were routinely over 70. Uh, bumping up the dry hop levels so they were, you know, a pound and a half above um you know so uh a little bit more hop focused uh drier uh more bitter and the nice thing about that style and i still love that style is that when you drink it and it's bitter like that if the bitterness isn't harsh it's very it it, it makes it a very pleasant drink that you actually want it it prompts you to drink more you know it kind of dries out your palate and then you you want to take more because you get thirsty um the the hard thing about you know those beers is if you don't nail the hot bitterness and it becomes very harsh uh and that's not pleasant at all but i think you know these the brewers i mentioned and a lot of the new ipas that came out in the early 2000s were were classic uh what i would consider classic west coast ipas next came the belgian ipas i'd actually forgotten about those that style had a <laughs> that style had a lot of momentum maybe not quite 10 years ago and then sort of faded away yeah exactly i belgian ipas are are a tough one i there were two approaches that i knew that brewers did and and when i was at stone we did both of them one was to make ipa wort and ferment it with belgian yeast and that that was pretty easy and the other was to make something like a belgian triple and and then hop it like an ipa um and and both both methods worked i tended to prefer the the ones that were formulated like a triple uh, a little bit better i thought they were a little more elegant but you know when you get a belgian beer and you get you know those clove and uh banana type flavors being produced you run the risk of of the hops clashing with the yeast character and and I think that's what most people had a hard time with with belgian ipas and and i I just you know hoppy Belgian beers are wonderful, but you know if you call it a belgian ipa i I don't think people gravitate towards that, and so they kind of came and went, yeah. And then the same can kind of be said for both black and white ipa uh, you don't see those styles all that often anymore either no, you really don't and and I didn't. I didn't think the white IPA really had a lot of legs originally. There were only a few brewers that made it. It was a last-minute addition to my book because it had just started happening right when we were going through the editing process. And so I quickly did a little research and made a couple phone calls and, and got the scoop on how people were brewing those. But black IPAs, you know, that was one of my favorite beers we did at Stone was the Sublimely Self-Righteous Ale, which was a black IPA. It was originally Stone's 11th anniversary beer. And I thought that was going to have a little more staying power. But in the end, I think what really killed that was the was the oxymoron of black and India pale ale, which, you know, you, you can't, how can you have a black pale ale? Well, you know, and, and my argument always was, well, if you call it an IPA, you know what you're getting. If you call it a black IPA, you know exactly what you're getting. You're getting a really hoppy beer that's black in color. And, you know, so to me, I never had a problem with calling it a black IPA. And then, you know, the, there were a bunch of uh, folks that wanted to call it Cascadian Dark, which to me is even more confusing than black IPA. Um, and, you know, so I think the whole naming convention for that beer really, really threw that that style out of, of contention. And, they, you know, the, the Brewers Association still recognizes it as American Black Ale, which is fine. But you're right. Not many people are brewing it anymore. Then my favorite, because I like to drink several beers and still be able to stand up, Session IPA. Do you think that style will stick around? Yeah, actually, I do. I think um, I think Session IPAs and lower alcohol beers are something that are going to stick around for a while. I think, you know, the hard thing with brewing a Session IPA is getting a good balance with, with the hopping uh, and not making it taste like a hop hop tea but i think people in general and and certainly we see this at new realm and we we see it you know in the in the national statistics and and the economists and and uh beer guys that research this stuff you know that the lower alcohol beers are becoming uh pretty pretty popular among beer drinkers and and so i think session ipa is going to stick around for a while what what is what's important to you when you're brewing a session IPA? I mean, you already talked about sort of the the balance and stuff, but I mean, what are what are some key um, key strategies there? 
Well, for me, it was always trying to make a beer that doesn't taste like it has low alcohol. And so, um, you know, I didn't want it to taste thin and watery. And and so what I always tried to do was was get enough body in there to put a little balance in it. Um, You know, some some I didn't want it to be sweet, um, but I. I wanted it to have enough malt character and enough body that the hops, if you hopped it like a regular IPA, that the hops would, would be prominent, but not be over, overdone. And, um, you know, and we, we tried a lot of different things with, with session IPAs to try and do that. You know, we tried crystal malts and then pulled them out. Munich malt works really well. Uh, things like Carafoam and or uh, carapils, you know, the dextrin malts work work pretty well in those styles. And then, uh, you know, keeping the hopping uh, a little tame, um, you know, as opposed to a regular IPA. Don't don't target seventy IBUs and something that's only four and a half percent alcohol, maybe fifty to sixty, which a lot of regular IPAs are are kind of targeting that level of IBUs now anyway. So you're not overdoing it with that with that kind of an IBU level. But, um, you know, and, and then we always approached the dry hopping. We went pretty aggressive on the dry hopping, but not so much to overwhelm any of the malt character or the body of the beer. We're going to talk about some of the, the newer trends in IPA in a minute. But before we do that, I'm curious, uh, why do you think IPA became such a large share of craft beer over the last 10 or so years? Very good question. Um, I think, number one, I think it was fueled by brewers, and brewers are the biggest beer fans in the world. And I think brewers really took to the style, and it became kind of a, a bragging rights kind of thing with, with some of the IPAs. Um, and I think people in general just over the years have become accustomed to and educated about the taste of hops in a beer. And, you know, and, and so I think people have gone from you know turning their nose up at a bitter beer to really appreciating all the flavors that can come from hops and i think that's a big part of it as well yeah that makes sense i've also wondered if it's not uh if 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 this wouldn't be a factor too because you know i remember going to a lot of uh i mean let's face it craft beer has gotten a lot better in in the last decade or so right i mean there's always you know some bad beers out there but i think odds of getting a good one are are, are greatly um have greatly improved than they than they were in say the um, the nineties and whatnot. And, you know, I have to wonder like, if you go to a, a brew pub and the beer's kind of mediocre at best, um, usually the IPA is going to be the one that you can really stomach because, you know, a little hops and alcohol are going to cover up some, some mistakes. Right. So, um, yeah. I, I have to wonder if people didn't sort of, um, you know, develop a, a taste for IPA because it was the most palatable out of what was around. Yeah. Probably the safest choice, wasn't yeah, it? Right. Right. So, <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> Obviously, we're in the thick of the haze craze. Uh, Dr. May told us all about New England IPA on episode 104, ah. but I feel like there's already been a lot of evolution within that style in a fairly short period of time. Some of these beers are pretty different from the ones that created the category, aren't they? Uh, I believe so, yes. And and I am certainly not an expert on, on brewing this style of beer. We've, we've done a few now, and I'm learning as I go. Uh, but you know, it's it's interesting. I think um, uh, you know the biggest thing, and, and I'll tell this story. I was at the craft brewers conference last week, and and talking with another brewer from a very well known brewery, and and I mentioned that we had uh, we had brewed a hazy IPA, and it was it was doing really well for us, um, and uh, and I I made the comment that you know we we got the hop character that we were looking for, the flavor, the juiciness, and all that. But we're still struggling with a haze, and I think that's kind of where a lot of people are 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 putting a lot of effort into trying to understand how to maintain a stable haze in these beers, and and so a lot of the ones that have come out recently that are going into bottles or cans and are on the shelves for a while, they're not quite as hazy as the original ones, I don't think. And um, you know, it's because you know those original hazy IPAs and the ones that are still being brewed up in New England, you know they they put those in a can and then they put it out on their website that they're going to sell them and people line up for hours 
and pick this beer up and it, and and they turn these beers over in a matter of a week and so if it's really hazy the the haze doesn't have a chance to settle out into you know kind of a thick mass at the bottom of the package and uh but now that brewers are are going through regular channels and through distribution to sell these beers you know the st- stability of the haze is becoming a lot more important yeah, that makes sense. So I know you said you're kind of new to the style, but you know wh- what's been important to you so far. Um, what have been key key strategies for for brewing the ones you've done so far? Yeah, here's here's what we've learned. Um, number one, the yeast strain is very important. Um, we have we have tried several. Our, our house ale strain is is California ale yeast. That doesn't do it. Um, that does not get the biotransformation that you want. Um, London Ale Three or the Vermont Yeast are are the two best that I've seen. I know there's some other ones out there. I saw a presentation last week that indicated that there's a a Kolsch yeast that does really well with biotransformation. Um, you need to add the hops pretty early in the fermentation to really get the uh, the biotransformation going, and the, and the biotransformation chemistry is still being studied, and and you know, and what is going on there, and which compounds are being acted on by enzymes, and and what are the resulting flavors? Are they thiols? Are they you know hot, you know uh, terpenes? What are they? It, you know, it looks like it's a combination of everything. Um, but the the hop strain is really important as well. The hop variety, rather, is really important, and uh, certain hop varieties lend themselves better to um, to doing hazies and and getting that juicy character. Um, and you know, we use uh, we use El Dorado and ours uh, and Azaka, and those are both great hops for this. And I've heard Idaho Seven is a great hop for biotransformation. I've heard Citra is not a great hop. Uh, so, you know, those are the kind of things that you talk about with other brewers and you learn. Um, and then, uh, that's, so you need to, you need the early fermentation addition to really get the biotransformation, get that, that juicy character. And I remember the first time we brewed one and we added the hops at 24 hours into the fermentation. And then at 48 hours, and we taste our beer every day at 48 hours, that beer had just gone from hop resin to, to orange juice. And it was amazing to, to, to see that happen and, and just kind of realize that it really worked. Um, and then, you know, following it with an additional dry hop, one of the things that we learned is you got to be careful with that second dry hop if you do it post-fermentation because you could cover up all your juiciness by using too many hops in the second dry hop. So, um, you know, that's uh, those are the kind of things that we've learned. Um, the haze, you know, everybody's that's brewing these beers is using oats and using wheat malt. I think uh, where the wheat malt comes from might be important. I haven't been able to prove that yet, but I'm hearing that American wheat malt might be better suited for hazy IPAs than European wheat malt. I don't know. You know, so there's a lot, a lot to learn still. And now there's people that are really taking a scientific approach to this and there's new stuff coming out all the time. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I was going to ask you about, um, uh, well, you're, when you talk about dry hopping during active fermentation, um, what do you think, what are your thoughts on sort of the, um, the balance between, um, you know, one school of thought is you want to get the hops in, you know, as early as possible to maximize biotransformation. The other uh, concern is if you get them in there too soon, you're going to have a lot of CO2 stripping. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't see a lot of that, really. I, you know, I don't see any degradation of the hop character after after day one. Uh, it just changes. And, you know, maybe the stripping happens early, and so we just don't see it. But I'm not overly concerned with it, how about, to be honest. How about um, managing yeast in that scenario, which is obviously a nightmare? Uh, how are you attacking that? Yeah, that's a huge issue. And that's that's one I hope somebody finds a solution for. Uh, honestly, you know, when you add the hops in the middle of fermentation, your yeast is ruined. You can't, uh, I know there are some people that are repitching it, but boy, it, it is bitter. It is harsh. And the viability is really low, at least what we've seen. And so we don't, we don't repitch typically from a, from a new England IPA fermentation. Uh, and because we're not using our house yeast, in that it's it's created a very high cost for brewing this beer because we have to get fresh yeast every time. Uh, if you have a propagation system and can grow yeast, you can save a lot of money by buying a smaller pitch and 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 growing your yeast and then and then adding it to the beer. But we haven't found a way to repitch off hazy IPA fermentations, and that's a real problem. Yeah. 
Um, cool. And I'm glad you talked about yeast selection too, because I think that, um, I think that especially at the consumer level, these, you know, the hops get all the attention in these beers, but you know, these flavors in these beers are very yeast driven. And, uh, so I, I think that yeast selection is incredibly important. And I, I've made some interesting ones with, um, you know, with, with, with old school hops, with, with sea hops that still gotten a lot of the, the stone fruit and those interesting flavors if you use the right yeast strain. Um, so yeah. Cool. Uh, okay, well, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about one of the latest trends, which is brewed IPA. Uh, a good bit of Sierra Nevada's version has been cycling through my beer fridge lately. Talk about where this style came from. So brewed IPA, we think, was created by Kim Sturtevant at the Social Kitchen and Brewery in San Francisco. That's the documentation. Um, and I, apparently he was using... Um, um, amyloglucosidase enzyme in some of his imperial stouts and decided to try it in an IPA. And, uh, you know, the first ones, and I've talked with people at, at Drake's out in the Bay Area about how they brew it, because they brew a lot of these. Um, and, you know, there's, uh, it's a beer that's incredibly dry, you know, and, and as opposed to maybe the medium bodied and sweet New England IPAs, maybe this is a reaction to that and, and going in the opposite direction. Uh, but the idea of adding enzyme to a craft beer is something that uh, really wasn't thought about a lot until very recently. Uh, you know, enzymes were always kind of the um, uh, the realm of big brewers and, uh, you know, doing the, the low-carb beers and the low-cal beers and, uh, you know, the ultralights and all that kind of thing. And so the idea of using using uh enzyme in a craft beer uh to break down every every dextrin into into glucose uh was kind of cool and um i was intrigued by the style when i first heard about it and so i talked it was just about a year ago and i was talking to some of the brewers at drake's about it and we've brewed five or six of them now uh and and have had a lot of fun with them um i think you know a, a couple of things that i've learned about brewing a good brute IPA is number one, you got to drop the IBUs uh, from a regular IPA. Uh, you know, we found that 25 to 35 is about the sweet spot uh, for bitterness. Otherwise, because it's so dry, it's, it's unbalanced. It's too bitter. Um, a lot of the a lot of the brewers started using uh, European hops in these to try and get kind of a wine like character. Uh, I've moved away from that. Um, I've kind of gone into using uh, uh, Cascades and and some of the newer hop varieties in it. Like uh, we we did one with Sabra, we did one with Strata, uh, and that was. Uh, that was a great thing. I think the biggest challenge with brewing these beers is getting the dryness, um, especially you're you're going to get the dryness if you add the enzyme in the fermenter, and that's what how these beers started to be brewed. Uh, the problem with that and the risk with that is that enzyme, if you don't get it out of the fermenter, can impact the next batch of beer that goes in there, and um, you know, so it's it's a real problem. Um, you know, if if you put in another batch of beer into that fermenter, and it's there's still some residual enzyme hanging out in in some gasket material, uh, you can get a drier beer than what you want. And I I learned that the hard way. We we had a strip cleaning process that wasn't quite followed when we did our uh, one of our first brewed IPAs, and the next beer that went in there finished it at about one degree Plato when it should have finished at about four. So. Wow. Um, yeah, so it, it's it's a real risk. And so we've done a lot of work recently just trying to get the enzymatic activity all done in the brew house uh, prior to the boil. And then you can denature the enzyme in the boil. Do you want to talk about the impact of um, uh, other impacts from adding enzymes uh, in like late fermentation versus early? I mean, obviously, there's there's going to be some ester implications there, too, as well, right? Yeah, I think... Um, the biggest thing that I've seen with adding the enzyme late is it really messes up the yeast. And, you know, if you look at how yeast consumes the sugars in wort, yeast will always go for the lowest hanging fruit first. You know, they're going through the for the glucose and the fructose or, you know, whatever sugars are in there, the lower the less complex sugars first, and then they kind of transition into metabolizing things like maltose. And so if you add the, the enzyme too late and the yeast are already fully conditioned to be uh, breaking down maltose and fermenting that, 
they get thrown into a bit of a tizzy and start throwing a lot of diacetyl. And, uh, and that's what we saw. You know, if we, if we add the enzyme day one of fermentation, we're fine. But if we add it like day three or day four, when the, you're, you're one or two degrees Plato above terminal gravity, the, enzyme, the yeast gets really stressed out and throws a lot of diacetyl. And it takes a long time for that diacetyl to be reconsumed and reduced. Uh, and that's the biggest difference I've seen. How about yeast selection for brute I- for brute IPAs? Um, we've just used our standard yeast. Um, I know there are people that are using champagne yeast. Uh, I haven't tried that yet. Uh, I've seen people use Belgian yeast in these, um, but yeah, we just use our standard ale yeast, and that and, and it's Cal ale yeast, and it works fine. Okay, um, generally speaking, how has your dry hopping strategy evolved over the years, and what do you want to try next? Um, so how my dry hopping over the years, I think like a lot of brewers, my addition rates have gone up. Uh, I remember when a quarter pound per barrel was considered a lot. And then, then when I got to stone a pound and a half per barrel was considered a lot back in 2006. Uh, and now there are so many brewers that won't dry hop with anything less than two pounds per barrel. You know, so I think using uh, using more hops is probably the biggest change that I've seen over the years. The other thing, I like to blend hops, and I'm not a big single hop guy, and and this is something that I continue to do now, and and really look for nice ways to to make the hops very complex in a beer, and and so I try not to do a lot of single hop dry hopping uh, in in my beers, uh, and that's just a personal preference and. Uh, and there's a practical reason as well. You know, if one of the hops changes in a crop year or, you know, you can't get as much of it, you can you can make transitions without completely altering the taste of the beer and, and keep it close to the original hop profile. So those are the things that I, I tend to look at with dry hopping. I am interested very much in some of the new varieties that are coming out. You know, the experimental programs are going crazy. Uh, a lot of new stuff coming out and, and just getting new flavors, you know, out, out of hops. You know, the, some of the experimental hops now are, are producing a lot of coconut flavors and a lot of kind of oaky vanilla kind of character and orange cream and strawberry. And, um, you know, to me, that's the fun part of brewing is getting some of those hops in and trying them out. I think I was at the same booth you were at CBC trying some different beers. (laughs) (laughs) That was Mitch Steele here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you haven't already read it, check out Mitch's book, IPA, Brewing Techniques, Recipes, and the Evolution of India Pale Ale. I'll put a link in the show notes or you can pick up a copy from the Master Brewers Bookstore at mbaa.com slash store. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Yeah.